All right, we are back. We have left China for now, temporarily. Yeah, <laughs> and、uh, we have another story of nationalist awakening,、uh, pre World War One, and. Uh, great power machinations.、Um, so we're going to Morocco, the Agadir crisis. Yeah, we've gone to Morocco before, <laughs> and we're back. We've been here six years. <clears throat> 1905 is when we left with、uh, a very humiliating treaty being imposed on、mm. the Emir of Morocco, the Sultan. Sorry, the Sultan of Morocco. Uh, where it's、uh, kind of a de facto partition, right? Of,、uh, of Morocco. Yeah, zones of influence, anyway. Yeah, and France being the big one, France of course has to take Morocco because they have Algeria. <laughs> This is how imperialism works, right?、Mm. <laughs> to we'll never have the secure. Well, our colony will never be secure unless we secure more colonies. <laughs> That's、yeah. right. And meanwhile, in Morocco, though, I—it's a story I wanted to tell because we have、um, the similar things happening in Turkey, Persia. We've told these stories, and even China. There's something about this king that comes to power and、uh, can't shake the foreigners off. They're too strong, and that's what he came to do, and that's what he promised to do, and he's not able to do it. So I mentioned two books in the last Morocco crisis, and I'm using the same one: Susan Gilson Miller, A History of Modern Morocco, and Jonathan Wurtzen, Making Morocco. So I think we'll do this where I'll just tell you a little bit about the nationalist awakening, awakening, and what was going on inside Morocco, and then you can take over、uh, and talk about what the Europeans did in Morocco and how it affected their relations with one another. Right. So we have that humiliating treaty、uh, that's imposed on the Sultan、uh, Abdelaziz, and because it's so humiliating, and Abdelaziz is not apparently able to resist, the elites in the palace are looking for someone else. They're looking for a new Sultan. The candidate that they choose is Abdel Hafiz.、Uh, he's the Khalif in Marrakesh. He's the older brother of the Sultan, and he. Has some strong connections to the Berber people、uh, in the Atlas Mountains, and these are tribes of families that are powerful and kind of decide what happens in their areas. And so, he, you, if you want to rule, you have to make an alliance with them. So he has the biggest and preeminent family、uh, tribe. There is the Glawa, and they're headed by Madani Al Glawi. And they don't like the French, so he makes an alliance with Glau Glawi, and Hafiz has himself declared Sultan in September 1907 in Marrakesh, and this is、uh, accepted by the Berber people in the mountains, but it's not accepted by the ulama, the religious scholars in Fez. They didn't like it. They think they're supposed to be the ones who give the blessing, right? They give、mm-hmm. the they give the blessing to the sultan. But nonetheless, within a few months, they give a conditional fatwa. It's called a bayah there in Morocco, and they appoint Hafiz to 
the Sultan kit. Sultanate. Um, it's conditional, though. This is the first time, apparently, that they've ever given a conditional um, be, uh, conditional blessing. So the five conditions on him to get the blessing to become Sultan is that he has to fight the French, resume the jihad, uh, abolish the gate tax, liberate the cities of Ujda and Casablanca from foreign occupation, and the protections regime by which European uh, imperial powers protect so-called minorities in Morocco and confine the Europeans to the port cities. Basically, he has to reverse imperialism. <laughs> okay. Or uh, or he can't be sultan. So he has to revoke the act of Algeciras. Uh, and he wins his the war with Abdelaziz within about a year, uh, um, six months, a year. The final battle is won on August 19th, 1908. And Abdelaziz leaves Morocco. Oh, no, no, he doesn't leave Morocco. He becomes a pensioner in Tangier, where he dies not until 1948. So that's the end of Abdelaziz's sultanship and the beginning of what they call the Hafizia, because it's Abdel Hafiz. The thing about Abdel Hafiz is he doesn't have the power to get rid of the French. So slowly he reinstates the taxes. He doesn't really restart the fighting. He sells offices, corruption. Uh, one German observer quoted by Susan Gilson Miller says he's in the same situation as his predecessor, without prestige, without authority, faced with an empty treasury and a mounting debt. So he's by 1911, he's alienated his tribal supporters. They put him under siege in Fez. And the thing that he does <laughs> after everything Yep. is he calls for French help. So the French organize a gigantic expeditionary force. Uh, it enters Fez on May 21st, 1911, uh, in Miller's words, ending the fiction of Moroccan independence. He signs over control of his army to France on August 15th, 1911, and signs the Treaty of Fez, creating a French protectorate in March 1912. So basically, he chooses to be a puppet in the palace rather than a rebel in the mountains. Yeah. And there are plenty of rebels in the mountains. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, in August 1912, uh, Lyoté, who we've talked about quite a bit, and there's more to say about him, he forces Hafiz to abdicate and puts in his own puppet in the palace, Mole Youssef, whose main virtues were his quiet reserve, his piety, and his bland personality. I hope that's not my <laughs> epitaph. Um, <laughs> Hafiz, uh, in a huff, he broke the royal parasol. He smashed the imperial seals before leaving for exile. So that was the period of the Hafizia. Uh, Susan Gilson Miller has a surprisingly optimistic take on this. She says, the notion... These are all the good things that came out of it, according to her. The notion that public opinion should influence policy, that the leadership should demand bureaucratic accountability, and that rulers ought to adhere to the contacts, contracts that lent them legitimacy were abstractions now being seen in a new light. The idea that consultation and power sharing should be central to the governing process was also emerging as an explicit theme. So she says, don't see the Hafizia as a shameful episode. See it as a bridge between old... Uh, Morocco and new post-national Morocco. I like the idea of a conditional blessing. 
Yeah, that's true. That's right? true. Re- yeah. Remember in democracies when the party used to have a platform <laughs> and you used to hold yeah. them accountable to their election promises? Now they just don't bother making promises at all. No. Well, you know, we're going to we're going to get inflation under control by driving everybody into unemployment. That's their big promise. <laughs> wow. Um we're going to get costs under control by getting rid of your health care. Yay. Uh, okay. We just call that balancing the budget. Balance the budget. Yeah, that's the one thing they'll, they, they'll always promise to balance the budget. But uh, so speaking of modernization, uh, this is the period. This Hafizia and a little bit before. This is when telephones, telegraphs, cameras, bicycles, sewing machines, po- pianos, motor cars arrive. There are public political rallies, foreign newspapers, debates about the role of religion and politics. There's a new generation of scholars who call themselves Salafis, which has a different meaning today. They were inspired by Sufism, actually. They are debating what jihad means and what it means to become be a modern uh, country that's Muslim. Uh, the port cities, there are there's lots of business being done in Tangier and Casablanca, which is developing. Tangier has the Jewish population. A lot of the elite educated at this French Alliance Israelite Universelle, which was founded in 1864 by Moses Montefiore. You remember Mm -hmm. him from last time, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, One observer says Jews, Muslims, and Christians are living promiscuously side by side (laughs) in this period. Uh, Apparently, Abdel Hafiz's children are doing two plus hours of French lessons every day. Um, there's a, the first national history of Morocco, the Kitab al-Istiqsa by Ahmed al-Nasiri, is written uh, in 1880s. And there's a there's a fiery call to arms called Advice to the People of Islam by Jafar al-Khattani in 1908, calling on Moroccans to unite and purge noxious foreign influences. Speaking of which, I'll leave you with a couple of poems, Dave. Um, one is after the Treaty of Fez is imposed... Uh, on Hafiz. Uh, this is a poem that's quoted in Jonathan Wirtz, and apparently there's a lot of nationalist poetry and rebel poetry, and here's a representative sample. Maulay Hafiz came and we welcomed him. He promised us that once he arrived in Fez, he would call on the Muslims for help. But when he settled in, he called on the chiefs of the Hauz, Hauz being the Berbers from the Atlas Mountains, to be his counselors. Oh, Morocco, he, has all, he had already sold you to the Irumin. The Irumin are the French, basically. And then um, here's another one. There's a, here's more of a resistance one, because like I said, uh, now once the French take over, starting in 1912, they're basically continuously fighting rebels in the mountains all the way until 1927. Uh, so it's a continuous. We'll have to come back to talk about resistance in Morocco. Um, here's a rebel... Here's a rebel poem. I look at the land. It is covered with automobiles. I look at the sky. It is full of planes. Where then will the Muslim go who asks himself, what do I have to do in the territories governed by the Christian? So um, that's a little bit of nationalist poetry from the 1910s. Mm. <laughs> so uh that's the lament that's the lament for the moroccan uh independent minded moroccan what what shall we uh shall we look at things from the other side yeah i of course i came from uh my usual sources macmillan uh the war that ended peace 
and Clark, the sleepwalkers. So their interest in Morocco is how did this contribute to the outbreak of World War One? And then I had a, a study of the Moroccan crisis, the second just by itself by Medlicott. So to to contemporary observers, this crisis that's going to break out, uh, the second Moroccan crisis or the Agadir crisis, is a classic example of the evils of secret diplomacy. Uh, E.D. Morel, you might remember him pressuring Britain for 10 years to do something about the atrocities in the Belgian Congo. He wrote a book about it. And Ramsay MacDonald, the Labour Party leader, called the crisis a merciless exposure of the dishonour, which is accepted as honour in diplomatic circles. So there's this suspicion that these secret treaties are actually driving the agenda and causing all of these problems. So there's a call for more open diplomacy. And Macmillan says, in fact, it's the open diplomacy or what she calls injudicious publicity, which gave Europe six months of crisis and another major war scare. And it was secret diplomacy that brought it to its end. Because you know these political leaders, they they have to posture when they're in public. And they have to say things like, you know, we will never negotiate with terrorists or we will not back down, you know, this kind of stupidity. And then when they meet in private, they can actually do things like compromise or, you know, know, back away from extremes. So the two main players were two professional diplomats. Jules Cambon was the French ambassador to Germany from 1907 or 1908 to 1914. Uh, His brother was the French ambassador to Britain. So the Cambon brothers have a, a, a big role here. And his counterpart was Alfred von Kiderlin Wachter, uh, appointed foreign minister in 1910 by the new German chancellor, Theobald von, von Bethmann-Hollweg. So we've got a whole bunch of new players here. So from the European perspective, the first Moroccan crisis in 1905 left France in a, in a preeminent position and they're best placed to intervene. Now, Spain has its own sphere of influence in the north and all European, uh, you know, commercial interests are allowed to invest in Morocco. So there's money and that sort of thing as well. So the French are trying to, uh, in quotes, reform Morocco and to make also in quotes, economic improvements. Obviously, this means You just want to put the Sultan even deeper on the hook, you know, get him even further indebted and then gradually, you know, take over control of all of the, uh, you know, economic uh, infrastructure that you can possibly do. So all they did was make Abdulaziz even more unpopular for, you know, selling his country to the infidel. That's an interesting turn. The Irmani, any idea what that means? Uh, I'll I'll take a look. Yeah, I'll find it. Well, you keep going and I'll find it. Okay. Is it in the same neighborhood as Ferengi? Yes. Uh, although they didn't call them Ferengi, they called them they they called them Irumin or Christians. They just called them Christians. Okay. Okay. So even though he's got French support, <clears throat> Abdulaziz uh, was losing ground to his brother 
uh, Moulay Hafid, who was more vocal and more energetic. And as you pointed out in 1908, uh, Hafiz becomes Sultan. And the German foreign ministry seems to have taken that as a signal that the status quo wasn't going to last. One day, the French were going to take over Morocco completely. And they started thinking that instead of clinging to the Algeciras Act, that Germany should probably try to work out some kind of bargain, some kind of deal in return for recognizing, you know, the inevitable French authority, the French takeover that they felt was coming. Maybe we can get some economic, uh, you know, trading cards or, or chips in, in return. There was a German consul in Fez, Dr. Rosen, and he was strongly backing the Manasman group, businessmen seeking mining concessions in southern Morocco. There was also the Union of Moroccan Mines, an international syndicate where the French had 50% of the capital, the Germans 20%, and the rest was divided among six other countries, including Britain. So it's funny how these you know, international diplomatic and military rivals could cooperate when it came to, you know, plundering colonies and things like that. In 1909, the French and Germans signed an agreement. Germany recognized France's special political interests in Morocco, while France promised to safeguard economic equality and not hinder German commerce. It makes that, me that think economic equality does not mean what it sounds like. Oh, that no, no, means, no. Between us. Everybody gets the same <laughs> trade rights in Morocco, right? Yeah. yeah, like the open door in China. It's the open door. It's another word for the open door. By the yeah. way, it, it, Jonathan Wurtzen never says what Irumin means. He says in the poems, the French are generally referred to as Irumin, singular Arumi, or Christians. They are rarely referred to as Francis. Doesn't say much more than that. Heard that before too. Okay. So the French are willing to have this sort of open door economic equality, but they want the two main railway lines that are being built in their own hands. First reason is because of the military importance. And the second is they're actually fearful of German influence and competition. Uh, the German foreign minister, Kiderlin Wachter, was dealing with two French foreign ministers. You might remember how often the French government changed, right, annually or more often. Uh, but he didn't get very far with either Stephen Pichon or the inexperienced Jean Crupy, uh, both of whom viewed German participation in the railways with alarm. Uh, meanwhile, the French were now supporting the new sultan, Hafiz, uh, who showed himself to be no more able than his predecessor. So they enmeshed him with new loans, they gave him lots of advice, and he quickly became just as unpopular <laughs> as his brother. When rebels attacked French troops near Casablanca in January of 1911, uh, the Sultan's forces were unable to do anything. They couldn't even subdue rebel tribes near Fez, which was the capital. Now the Europeans start worrying about the safety of the foreign colony there. I don't know if this is, you know, memories of the Boxer Rebellion or or this just happens everywhere. 
but you know what's going to happen to to the Europeans living there? Uh, although the German consul said there was no danger. So the Spanish and Germans are now worried that the French will intervene and that if French troops go in to, you know, to restore order, they'll never leave. They'll stay and France will take over direct rule. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Good, good guess, Spain and Germany. Yeah. So Foreign Minister Kruppi insisted that any intervention would be temporary and that just makes Spain and Germany suspicious. And Kruppi, you know, a rookie foreign minister and apparently not a very good one, he also did nothing to explain matters or to ask for support from Russia and Britain, his allies, which is a bit of an oversight. So the the key moment is in April of 1911 when Fez is besieged by hostile tribes. So Medlicott says that the Sultan appeared uh, appealed for French help. Macmillan, on the other hand, says that the appeal came three weeks after French troops started to arrive. So they somehow uh, knew knew the appeal would be coming, or maybe they sent the troops and then said, hey, why don't you ask for our help? Because it's already on the way. Uh, 20,000 troops were sent, uh, some French, some colonial, and some Moroccan. And they reached Fez. Uh, and the Moroccan troops attacked 14 villages. Apparently, they were quite severe and they were reined in when General Moignier arrived. The Sultan granted an amnesty, dismissed his Grand Vizier, and promised reforms, which I'm sure <laughs> everybody has heard th those before. But this is just the beginning of the great diplomatic storm that causes the, the crisis. So Spain reacted most aggressively. They started pouring troops into the Rif and making sweeping demands. Uh, meanwhile, the French troops were withdrawn from the vicinity of Fez, and Krupi seems to have realized that he wasn't going to be able to convince the world that nothing was going on. The French ambassador to Germany, Jules Cambon, was called home for discussions, and after these briefings, he was sent back to Berlin to meet with Chancellor Bethmann Hallweg and Foreign Minister Kiderlin Wachter. Combo hinted that Germany could expect compensation in return for recognition of the French position in Morocco, although that compensation might not come in Morocco itself. This is uh, June 23rd by this point. <laughs> Does this sound like a promising start? Uh, sounds like they're open to... Uh, that is the deal. Well, yeah, I don't want to spoil. I'm Mr. Spoiler, but that is the deal they end up doing, right? Something like that. Yeah. So you think, OK, so sit down, you know, talk it out, uh, make make your demands if you want to state them that firmly. Right. And then uh, work out a deal. But Kitterlin Wachter decided that he wanted to strengthen his hand by action. Uh, Clark, well, you know his position on German diplomacy. He said that when France, I'm, sent, I'm sure he, I'm sure Germany wouldn't have done that if they didn't have to. <laughs> right, according to Clark, that, pretty much. So he says when French sent troops, a German intervention was now inevitable. 
Well, no, it wasn't. They could have sat down and see what the French are offering. So Medlicott says Kitterlin Wachter borrowed a trick from Bismarck, which he called the smart rap over the knuckles. Uh, by smart, he means, you know, sharp. So a sharp rap on the knuckles to remind an opponent of Germany's strength and willpower. Okay, I'm not so sure that that's a great idea. Um, Kitterlin Wachter had a relatively free hand. He was uh, admired by most of the foreign office for his successful ultimatum to Russia and humiliation of Izvolsky during the Bosnia crisis. Uh, and he knows he, he has some room for maneuver, but he also knows that uh, while he's trying to persuade the French that he means business, he also has to reassure the Kaiser that, he, you know, we're not going to war over this because the Kaiser at this point looks like one of the most reasonable, careful people in the whole show. You know you're headed for trouble when that's the case. Well, it also contradicts, you know, much of the uh, portrayal of him as a loose cannon and, you know, causing trouble and so on. Well, he is that. But in this case, <laughs> he's right. He does not want an aggressive line over Morocco. He didn't want it in 1905, and he doesn't want it now. He's certainly not risking war over it. But on June 26th, he unenthusiastically agreed with the plan. For Bethman Hallweg, this is an opportunity to unite the country and to gain support for more naval spending. So there's that argument again that, you know, foreign policy very often has domestic policy roots. He wants to score another diplomatic success like Bulow had in the Bosnian crisis. But here's another guy, Bethman Hallweg, who has no direct experience of foreign affairs. His uh, rapid promotion to Minister of the Interior was due to strong family connections with the Kaiser. Uh, a Hamburg businessman named Albert Bowling said that Bethman Hallweg had all the qualities which honor a man but ruin a statesman. Interesting. Balding, by the way, was a friend of Bulow, the former chancellor, and Bulow was still sniping at his successor from the sidelines. Uh, Bethman Hallweg was pessimistic and riddled with doubts. While he was Minister of the Interior, he said that he was painfully experiencing the disparity between my ability and my duty every day. In that respect, he reminds me of the uh, the admiral who was put in charge of the Spanish Armada. He, he, uh, he told the Spanish king, I, I don't think I can do this job. And the king said, yeah, you can. I, I, I think you might, you know, maybe you should pick somebody else. No, you do it. Yeah, crap. Uh, so Bethman Hallweg left foreign affairs in the hands of Kitterlin Wachter, who was uh, forceful, brutally blunt, and known for his wit, sarcasm, indiscretions, and rudeness. He was initially a favor of the Kaiser because of his risque jokes and stories, but then he went too far, and one of his comments about the Kaiser uh, got back to Wilhelm. <laughs> He's rather thin-skinned, I guess. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, typically enough, Kitterlin Wachter had no respect for Bethman Hallweg. He called his boss the Earthworm. The, 
the only thing the two men had in common was a belief that Britain could be detached from the Entente with France. Now, this sounds a lot like a Clark approach. In fact, it's it's from Macmillan. So <laughs> the idea that the German idea that they could somehow get Britain out of the Entente with France just persists. They keep trying this and they're going to try it again. Kittel and Wachter uh, believed correctly that France was going to take over Morocco and he thought just a protest would be ineffective. So he's going to go with the grand gesture. He's going to send German ships to the southern ports of Agadir and Mogador with the uh, excuse that he was protecting German nationals, which is conveniently the same excuse that France and Spain are using. (laughs) And then once his gunboats are in place, he can sit back and wait for French offers. He never seems to have considered what the international reaction might be, which is kind of strange given the previous crises, not just the first Morocco, but Bosnia and all the other ones. So on July 1st, a German gunboat, the Panther, uh, anchored in Agadir Harbor, which is the southernmost port in Morocco on the Atlantic. And I'm curious to know why all the historians seem to fixate on this particular ship. I know the name of the Panther from just, you know, 25, 30 years ago reading about this crisis. Clark describes the Panther as an unimpressive craft, two years overdue for scrapping. Why would you bother saying that? What are you saying? So it's not really a threat? Why send a ship if it's obsolete? Macmillan quotes the Kaiser. The Panther was a small gunboat with two or three pop guns on board. And Medlicott agrees that it was only a little ship, but the effect was dramatic. And who cares about the Panther? Because four days later, the light cruiser Berlin arrived, and later on, a third ship, the Eber, came. So anybody saying the Panther wasn't a dangerous ship, that's not the point. The point is you are sending ships. It's gunboat. But why not a dreadnought, though? Uh, Range. Okay. Germany doesn't have any, uh, you know, coaling stations or uh, refueling stations on the way, right? Right. And and then if how long can you stay there without running out of fuel? (laughs) So. Light cruisers are are the answer. So, uh, McBillard also points out that Germany only informed other powers after the fact. So they sent the ships and then explained that they sent the ships. And they did a lousy, lousy job of explaining why they needed ships at Agadir. Agadir was close to foreign traders and there were no Germans there. So if your excuse is to protect German citizens, that's an obvious lie. <laughs> it's just a, a challenge to French dominance in Morocco, and that was seen as exactly that. Macmillan says that Germany has a very good case, and they could have gained considerable support, especially from Spain. France is clearly violating the Treaty of Algeciras and the agreements from the first Moroccan crisis. 
So it's really, really hard to see that this gunboat diplomacy did Germany any good. Jules Cambon had already made it clear that France was prepared to offer compensation. So now you're trying to strong arm them to offer more. So what Kitterland Wachter did was to make the whole thing public and created a crisis. Instead of some quiet diplomacy in the back rooms, as you like to imagine them conspiring to, you know, uh, partition Morocco, which is, you know, basically what they're doing. The, the Germans made this a big public thing. And it's interesting that it's not called the Fez crisis. Yeah. So, so the fact that it's known as the Agadir crisis suggests just how much of an impact the arrival of those ships had. And sending ships got the British involved. They start thinking, are the Germans going to try to seize a naval base on the Atlantic coast? So the first British reaction had been along the lines of, you know, you two sorted out. They had their own issues going on. They had the coronation of George V coming up. They had trouble over Irish home rule, which we'll cover in another episode. They had the suffragist demonstrations, which we've already covered. Uh, parliamentary reform, labor strikes. I mean, they've got a lot on their plate. But the fear of a German naval base on the Atlantic coast that gets their attention. And even if that's not what the Germans are planning, it doesn't matter. That's what the British see. Uh, a new French government was formed on the 28th under Joseph Caillot with another new and completely inexperienced foreign minister, Justin de Selve. De Selve asked the British if they would be prepared to join France in sending a warship to Mogador. You know, dueling warships we we saw this in in uh the uh, scramble for the pacific right where mm -hmm. the germans the british and the americans all send ships to was it tonga yeah so uh kayo is horrified by what his foreign minister just said because he doesn't want a naval gesture this is going to ramp up you know yeah. the tension and we're trying to play it down. He thought the Germans were open to a bargain, and let's do that. The British suspected that the Germans were in a belligerent mood, and they didn't want to escalate the crisis either. I mean, they're prepared to stand by France diplomatically, but they managed to annoy the French allies by proposing unnecessary conditions and over-dramatizing the whole thing. So... We got a, a, a open, tempest in open a teapot. Di open diplomacy, yeah. Yeah. Which is Macmillan's thesis. Right? Yeah. Uh, Medlicott describes Keio as a sly politician who wanted to conduct his own negotiations with Kitterland Wachter. He didn't always consult his foreign minister, and he didn't entirely trust the British. Uh, Macmillan says he had a shady reputation, uh, partly because of his scandalous marriage to a divorced woman. But Caillot was a realist. He asked General Joffre, the French commander-in-chief, about France's chances in a war with Germany. And Joffre was honest. He said, not good. Russia wasn't keen on being dragged into another crisis, and especially after the French had given them so little support over Bosnia. 
And the ambassador to Paris, the Russian ambassador, is now Izvolsky, the guy who was humiliated in the Bosnia crisis. He told the French it would be difficult to make Russian public opinion accept a war over Morocco. And my my eyebrows go up at that, really? Russian the, opinion? The czar might lose uh, the next election. <laughs> yeah. uh, but he also told them the Russian army needed two more years to rebuild. Tsar Nicholas said he would honor his word to France if necessary, but it would be sensible if the French came to terms with the Germans. So you have reasonable voices here saying, hey, let's talk it out. By the 4th of July, uh, British Foreign Minister Gray was proposing a four-power discussion. He meant Britain and France, Germany and Spain. But Kitterland, Wachter and Cambon agreed that they should keep it to themselves. So now Kitterland Wachter stakes out his maximum claim. He wants all of the French Congo. He did suggest that Togoland and Northern Cameroon could be included if the French didn't want to give up all of Congo, but he wants at least a piece of Congo plus some other territories. And here's where the bargaining starts to get a little sneakier. Clark says that uh, the French minister, Deselve, immediately fell under the thrall of Maurice Herbet, chef de cabinet at the foreign ministry. Herbet, he claims, worked hard to discredit the very idea of talks with Germany. Clark emphasizes the divisions in the French cabinet with the hawks trying to undermine Caillou. So this is a theme in Clark. There's always these uh, eminence gris, these people behind the scenes who are anti-German and who are poisoning, you know, opinions against Germany. They all hate us. Interestingly enough, he doesn't mention the one man that the Germans were most worried about. Theophile Delcasse was back, this time as Minister of the Navy. So he had handled the first Moroccan crisis and then been forced out of office. Uh, now he's back, but he is supporting Caillot and advising caution. So in the meantime, Kirillin Wachter went ahead and made things much, much worse. Clark says that Kirillin Wachter knew he wasn't a favorite of the Kaiser. That's putting it mildly. So he sought to bolster his position by marshalling the support of ultra-nationalist politicians and the press. So Kitterland Wachter leaked some stuff to friendly newspapers and started a major storm. And once the publicity campaign got started, he was unable to control its tone or its content. According to Clark, German policy, which aimed consistently to keep the crisis below the threshold of armed confrontation. Unfortunately, this crisis is now going to unfold against the background of thunderous nationalist press agitation and banner headlines like West Morocco to Germany. <laughs> Clark admits that this sounded alarm bells in Paris and London. And Ambassador Cambon said this, it is false that the German nation is peaceful and that the government is bellicose. 
The exact opposite is true. And August Babel, the socialist leader, told the British consul in Zurich, a horrible ending seems inevitable. <laughs> That's encouraging. Yeah, yeah. So Kittelin Wachter goes to the press and fires up, you know, the nationalist, jingoist nonsense that we've seen since, you know, Fashoda and, you know, every crisis. He did it deliberately. And Clark says, well, he kind of had to to bolster his position. <laughs> and then it got out of hand, you know. Clark, man. He's yeah. So then he starts talking about French intransigence and how they were trying to wreck the negotiations. So Macmillan agrees that there were young officials in the French Foreign Office in the Quai d'Orsay who wanted to add Morocco to Algeria, and uh, they were accustomed to acting on their own, given how frequently the government changed, right, and the, the quick succession of inexperienced foreign ministers. But Clark saves the major share of the blame for the British, of course. <laughs> So they were initially cautious, but then the anti-Germans in the foreign office adopted a robustly pro-French position. Why would you be shocked? They're allies. <laughs> right? And then the, the people he calls navalists, alarmed by the idea of a German base on the Atlantic coast of Morocco. And he says this was a misreading of the German position. Misreading. Uh, you know, unless, were... of course, the British read German newspapers. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Erie Crow wrote a memo saying that the Germans were really aiming at the subjection of France. This is from Macmillan, not Clark. So the British cabinet approved a message to Germany stating that Britain was now more deeply concerned. And that they were obliged to stand by France. What, the Germans... what I still don't understand is. The Germans couldn't have done anything to France in Morocco. They would have had to challenge them in Europe or something, right? Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. So the British made their position clear. And the Germans didn't reply for two weeks, which, you know, I looked into it and I couldn't figure out why would you not respond? This is just clumsy, <laughs> inefficient. Were they talking about other stuff in the same time? Like, just not that. I think somebody went on holiday and somebody didn't tell somebody <laughs> else and, you know, that kind of stuff. So that just made the British more suspicious, of course. Then there's a uh, – the British do put their foot in it. It's uh, David Lloyd George, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, basically the British finance minister. Uh, he made a speech on July 21st called the Mansion House Speech. And in it, he included a sharp warning to Germany. Britain was not going to surrender its preeminent position. Quote, I say emphatically that peace at that price would be a humiliation intolerable to a great nation like ours to endure. Okay, that's a little over the top. <laughs> but remember that Clark's you know, one of his major arguments is that the British never told the Germans, you know, exactly where they stood. Well, this sounds like they are. Now, Clark's version of this is this is the gray group, the gray in the anti-German lobby, deliberately raising the temperature. Yeah. Uh, Lloyd George didn't show his speech to the cabinet beforehand. Only gray and 
Prime Minister Asquith saw it. But Lloyd George wasn't a hawk, nor was he a member of the Grey Group in the Foreign Office. In fact, he was known as a dove, as a radical much more concerned with domestic reform. And that made his speech all the more surprising and alarming for the Germans. Of course, they were also offended. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So you see all the contradictions in here. So this is supposedly the Grey Group raising the temperature, but Lloyd George wasn't one of them. He should have cleared his speech with the whole cabinet. But Kitterlin Wachter unfortunately had to go to the press. (laughs) Your double standard here is a little, yeah, a little obvious. Now, the British cabinet and the Liberal Party were split. Many of them wanted to improve Anglo-German relations, and many of them feared that Gray was uh, secretly committing them to an actual alliance with France. And this is largely why Gray often says one thing in public and another in private. So for Clark, he complains that this is a source of confusion and vexation for Germany. <laughs> but, you know, he's, all three he's countries... Germany's, he's Germany's defense lawyer, basically. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but And he's the first one to tell you that all three countries were sending mixed messages. At this point, Kitterlin Wachter, is, uh, his confidence has been shaken. Uh, he has other problems. Austria-Hungary was mildly disapproving. They hadn't been consulted. Uh, And the Kaiser, who had gone on his summer cruise to Norway, uh, made it clear that he did not want a war. He was threatening to come home and take over directly. So now the German Foreign Office and the Army are both jittery at the prospect of war over a colonial dispute that could have been, and eventually was, easily solved. The British had their own moment of panic. You know, in these crises, there's always the fear that your enemy is going to launch a surprise attack. Yeah, sure. Uh, So the British panicked. They lost track of the German Navy for 24 hours. (laughs) But that's amazing that they had that kind of knowledge of where the German Navy was. Well, yeah, they had ships shadowing them, right? Yeah. But but they lost them for, for a day. And that led to cabinet orders. Okay, so first soldiers were sent to guard weapons depot. uh, And Gray finally came clean to the cabinet about the fact that uh, general staff talks had taken place between the British and French armies. So as the prospect of war looms closer, you know, the truth starts to come out. So in the end, the result, they worked out a deal in November of 1911. German business interests were assured of respectful treatment and parts of the French Congo were were ceded to Germany. Uh, These became Togo and Cameroon. (laughs) That's, yeah, it's appalling. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That that they're trading. Oh, yeah, Yeah. but this is, yeah, Yeah. but that's the way they do it, right? Yeah. So the French nationalists were outraged that they had given away African colonies, you know, just for recognition of what they thought was a fait accompli. Caillot's government fell in January of 1912, and he was out of office. 
Now, mostly because he had been in secret contact with the Germans. And all of this, even though most French people saw the outcome as a victory, they don't know where Togo or Cameroon are or care, but Morocco, yeah, we get Morocco. Yay, we win. So that meant that the Germans were also angry. The German press used words like shame, humiliation, dishonor. And even the Kaiser's wife complained. She said, are we always going to retreat before the French and put up with their insolence? <laughs> she's not French, right? She's, she's no, 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 no. Uh, so I it there is a point here about the, the thing Lenin talked about in the the theory of imperialism, right? Where he says, as long as there's, I mean, he doesn't say exactly this, but it's like, as long as there's co- more colonies to get, uh, you don't have this. But but now that every every place in the world is somebody's colony, the only way to get more colonies is at the expense of somebody else. Oh. And uh, so they're going to start fighting over them. Yeah. Now, Kinderlin Wachter was kind of the the author of his own defeat. He had held out the possibility of gaining a piece of Morocco. So for Germans, the compromise sounded like a defeat. So here's Clark's take on it. Kinderlin Wachter had briefly and unwisely encouraged the ultranationalist press agitation, a Faustian pact that was only necessary because he had no other means of ensuring that the Kaiser wouldn't compromise Kitterlin Wachter's control of the policymaking process. Oh my God, <laughs> word salad. Right. So Kitterlin Wachter, you know, only briefly and unwisely, you know, opened Pandora's box. And it was necessary yeah. to, to keep the Kaiser out of it. Meanwhile, you know, the Kaiser was the voice of reason in the whole process. So, of course, Clark turns to blaming Britain, uh, Gray, for creating confusion, playing a double game, insisting the cabinet and the Liberal Party that Britain wasn't committed to France, while admitting privately that the gentleman's agreement probably couldn't be honorably avoided. To the French, it sounded very clear that Gray would stand by them, you know, no matter what he said about the non-binding nature of the Entente. But to the Germans, it looked very much as if Britain might stand aside, especially if Germany was not the aggressor. And I love that, you know, might. (laughs) I put it in bold (laughs) because, okay, so it's Britain's fault because they didn't make it clear. Yeah. (laughs) We already covered this. Remember in the naval race, the British asked for a naval holiday. Let's both stop building. And Germany's price was that Britain stay neutral in a Franco-German war. <laughs> the answer from the British was a definite no. Well, if you don't want a Franco-German war, you have to say no to that, right? Yeah. Anything, like, anything other than no is a green light to a Franco-German war. Right. So that's not clear enough? <laughs> Somehow the Kaiser took a lot of the blame in Germany. I guess he's like a convenient punching bag at this stage. And Admiral Tirpitz capitalized on public outrage to submit a new naval bill for six large ships. Uh, Bethman Holweg was opposed to the cost and the danger. In fact, many German admirals were opposed to the danger. 
so the Kaiser called his chancellor a coward and reminded him that he should reckon with political providence, which would see to it that a people with so much on their conscience as the English would be one day brought low. Well, that didn't happen. <laughs> well, not right away, no. <laughs> or ever yet so far <laughs> yeah. so the army the army wanted money too and the reichstag had to compromise and supply funds for both the army and the navy this crisis had some unintended well obviously unintended but some serious consequences uh one of the biggest consequences was that italy watching uh from the sidelines was encouraged to launch their own colonial venture the scariest an, though an unusual lesson to take from all this but i guess they feel like everybody's grabbing everything so they better too well i don't know if you remember uh when we discussed the french taking over tunisia yeah so the italians had had their eye on tunisia and the french grabbed it first and italy was very offended and now and it looks like the French hole. are going to take Morocco. So the French gave them a sort of a, hey, you know, if we ever take Morocco, you, you can get something else in North Africa. Oh, I see. So they had some kind of yeah, discussion this, about it. Yeah, and this plan's been on the burner for a while. This crisis, though, might be the perfect time to take advantage of that sort of offer. The scariest thing, though, is the the bitterness on all sides the injured pride and then of course the resolution to never back down again all because of the public hysteria right <laughs> field marshal moltke wrote to his wife the wretched morocco story is beginning to get on my nerves if we once again emerge from this affair with our tail between our legs if we cannot bring ourselves to make energetic demands which we would be ready to force through with the sword, then I despair of the future of the German Reich. In that case, I will leave. But before that, I will make a request to get rid of the army and to have us placed under a Japanese protectorate. What? <laughs> then we can make money without being disturbed and we can turn completely simple-minded. Well... It, it's, it opens differently than it closes. It opens and you think he's being sincere. And then by the end, he's kind of over the top and satirical. So I don't know whether he even means it. Like he doesn't, he won't leave, obviously. No, no. But he's just he does maybe despair. lost his patience with, you know, giving in. So that's interesting. Uh, you didn't give in in the Bosnia crisis. You won that one. Yeah, they feel so... They feel like such victims, eh? Well, it's this social Darwinistic stuff, right? Giving in they, makes you weak. They want their day in the sun, yeah. Well, everybody does, yeah. Uh, I think Gray had one of the best lines uh, after the crisis. He said, the consequences of such a foreign crisis do not end with it. They seem to end, but they go underground and reappear, reappear later on. Yeah, like resentment. It's kind of like you're just sowing the seeds of the next crisis until it finally blows up. Plus the historical revisionism, right? Yeah. We got robbed. <laughs> it was your fault. 
Yeah. Well, that's what Clark is. That's what Clark is there for. Clark is still working on it decades later. <laughs> yeah, and and then I think it's interesting from the perspective of the uh, private diplomacy versus, you know, public outrage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, diplomacy has to be secret unless. Like the Colombia peace process, it was interesting because they they had a whole negotiation in Cuba with secret negotiations, and they had this deal where the Colombian guerrillas would stand down and become a political party, and there was all kinds of land reform and other things that were attached to that plan. And then it then they made it public and had a referendum about it. Uh-oh. And people voted against it. <laughs> and it was like you don't have a referendum. It's not a. It's a. It's a. It's a negotiation of peace between belligerents. It's not a democratic process, right? Like not everything is. Not everything should be public and democratic. No, and in, in some cases the government is ahead of the public. Yeah, yeah. and they should just you know do the right thing, mm-hmm. and let people get used to it. Yeah, exactly. We exactly. we've seen that in Canada with the uh, the constitutional crises of yeah. the 1980s, 90s, and you know until we finally agreed. Well, let's just stop talking about it. Yeah, should we do it? Should we do the right thing or not? Like that's not a question you should vote on. Right? Is right. it a is this a dog or a cat? Let's vote. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or the or the present uh, Canadian mini crisis about. Uh, Chinese interference in our elections and so on. And yeah. so so many people, so much of the public want some kind of dramatic Yeah. Jet, like what do you think we're going to do? Send a Canadian ship to the Chinese <laughs> coast to intimidate them? <laughs> we'll take the whole Canadian army, uh, put it in a stadium in China somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a great case, too. It's like, this is something that's either happening or it's not. Personally, I think it's not. But, like, we're not going to find out by voting about it. (laughs) Right. 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 All right. So more crises to come. 